Guardian Unlimited. Guardian Unlimited, the Rugby World Cup show, sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. Well, hello again. Welcome along to our latest Guardian Rugby World Cup podcast. Uh, my name is Ian Payne, and I've got a lot to discuss in the light of a very newsworthy weekend in the Rugby World Cup. And to help us do it, we have Ian Pryor, who's the Deputy Sports Editor of The Guardian, Robert Kitson, who's in Nantes. He's the rugby correspondent for The Guardian. Uh, we have our resident Kiwi pundit with a big smile on his face, as always, Jed. And Steve Thompson, I'm delighted to introduce the former England hooker and, of course, World Cup winner in 2003. So let's start with you, Steve. Um, England have, I don't know if they've remedied the situation, but they've, they've shown a, a, a slight improvement on performances so far. What have your thoughts been on England and how they've played so far in this World Cup? Well, everyone, you know, the first game against USA, everyone was saying it was disappointed. But to be honest, it's, it's always hard, that first game against a sort of a lesser nation as such. And they'd have had their mind on South Africa, uh, which to me that was the, the real sort of letdown, really. Um, you know, I was in the stadium, I was watching it, you know, as, as a true Englishman and also as, as an England supporter now. And um, you know, if anything, I felt sorry for Jason Robinson because he'd really put his heart and soul into the match, and you could see he was just absolutely battered and bruised when he was sort of practically carried off. And uh, you know, it was just one of those bizarre matches where you see they just you can't believe it's actually happened the way it did. And um, you know, fair play to them for regrouping for the Samoa match. Um, and now they've got the ultimate one against Tonga. And, you know, let's be honest, no one really thought that they'd, they'd come to a sort of winner-takes-all match against Tonga. Did the outcome against South Africa surprise you? Because many people were predicting it might be very one-sided. Yeah, it did, I must admit. I, I thought, you know, my heart told me England and my head told me South Africa. You know, I was being realistic like that, but not in the way that it happened. You know, not to get a point. And to us, I don't even think we had a, a real kicking opportunity to get a point and um, that was the most you know surprising thing for me really. Robert Kitson how do you think England have improved or have they improved was Samoa just a, a, a match that they they could have won with their second team? Well I mean I think it's fair to say they couldn't have got much worse as, uh, as Steve's saying I think they, they, they there's definitely signs of improvement uh, against Samoa I mean you've got to take into account a couple of things I mean the Samoan line out was, uh, was negligible uh, and they gave away an awful lot of penalties uh, within uh, Johnny Wilkinson's range but uh, I, I think there were signs, you know, they, the players got together, they, they realised that they couldn't keep ploughing the same uh, sort of blinkered furrow or narrow furrow, if you like, that they had been doing. And so they, they tried to um, broaden their sort of attacking scope, if you like, and it, and it, and it, uh, it, it paid off. I mean, you know, the ball, you've got to get the ball into somebody like Paul Saki's hands before he can do the, um, you know, show what he can really do. So, yes, there were, there were signs of improvement. I think, though, that Tonga will be... You know, you really shouldn't underestimate them. They've, they've played very well so far. Got within five points of South Africa, as we know. Uh, they've got one of the best back rows probably in the tournament. And uh, I think, I think they're, they're better scrummagers. They're better at set-piece than, uh, than Samoans were. And uh, they shouldn't be taken lightly. Ian Pryor, we'll um, reflect on the grief of, of Ireland in a moment. No, but no first, hurry. But, but first, just uh, your thoughts uh, as Deputy Sports Editor of The Guardian on England's performance and the fact that they've got to play Tonga and how Tonga did it against South Africa. Um, what are your feelings of, of, of the weekend? You wonder about them. I mean, I wonder are we slightly overrating Samoa and all this. That's the third loss in a row. You know, they shipped 57 to South Africa, beaten, albeit narrowly, by Tonga. Um, and came with them very close. You know, you saw that game on Saturday when, when they got 26-22. They were camped on the England line for about five minutes. You thought, flipping hell, if this goes over, England are in serious trouble. Now, they weren't. They pulled away at the, at the end. But I think, you know, beating Samoa, even by... 
whatever it was, for me, doesn't resent, represent a resurrection where England are concerned. You know, Fred, Tonga is still a huge game. Bobby Skinsett has said this morning that he thinks Tonga are the second best team in the group, not England. Did he? Uh, he did, yeah. And, I, you know, anyone who thinks that, you know, they'll scrape it through might be in for a big surprise. What's the New Zealand view of, of, of Tonga and England? Are Tonga the second best oh, team well, in the I'm, group? I'm the first person to stand on the street with their hand up and go, oh, surprised about Tonga. And I'm, I'm certainly surprised about the Manu Samoa. It's, it kind of seems like a, you know, a total coin reversal. But when you consider, like, 30-25 on the box... Uh, it does make that win over Samoa look a lot more legitimate now. And so, yeah, I guess England have really got to square up. It'd be interesting. Steve, your thoughts on the type five, mate, and how their performance is at the moment? Um, well, you know, they, they scrummage well against South Africa. But other than that, I think they're quite loose around the side of rocks and things like that, and they, they're giving away easy metres at the moment. There seems to be some uh, space through that point. Yeah, definitely. And um, you know, that's where, you know, before, you know, I, I hate saying about, you know, the past where we were so tight and... Um, you know, we never give anyone an easy yard as such. And um, you look at the big teams, they're like that. They're so aggressive around the breakdown. You know, New Zealand, for instance, you know, they can really smell a turnover. And they'll, they'll send two men in max, and then all of a sudden, they'll just send four or five and turn the ball over. And um, at the moment, England just don't seem like they're going to be able to do that. What do you think is the, the really big problem as opposed to the 2003 side? Sir Clive Woodward said we didn't do what we were supposed to do after 2003. We were complacent. Is that how you feel, Steve? Yes, definitely. Definitely. What, uh, what did we know, do my, wrong? Even myself, you saw we came back and also what didn't help, we came back, you know, we flew in on the Tuesday and we were back training on the Wednesday and we were playing on the Saturday. Uh, and then we kept doing that for a couple of years and players, players were exhausted and things like that. You couldn't say it's an excuse, but still, you know, the players and the conveyor belt hasn't come through. You know, you look at the top players at the moment that are in that World Cup squad from last time, they're, not, they're nowhere near the player they were four years ago, when really they should be better. You know, a lot of them, Josh Lucy, players like that, were a lot younger then, so, you know, you'd expect them to come through maturity and really be, be at the top form this year, four years. You know, the Australians and Kiwis, you know, especially the Australians, they, they, they have a knack of doing that. You know, they might have a little lapse between, but all of a sudden, when it comes to the big tournaments their top players perform. Sterling Mortlock, for instance, you know, George Regan, every World Cup he performs. You know, I'm, I'm putting myself in that. If I'd have been fit now, I was, I was nowhere near the player, you know, last season than I was three years ago. Because you've played too much? Um, I, don't, I think mentally and just the way it was set up, it, it just, it, it didn't help you really have, like, have a rest and then come through and, and come up. You've got to get on with it. You know, there's players that, that can do it, but, you know, for, for me, um, I think the players are looking, you know, like they've played so much rugby that, you know, they're sort of, you know, rugby out as such. And has it, sorry, go on, Ian. Steve, what would be your solution to that? I mean, would you like to see them go down the route of, say, Ireland, where you, you central, centrally contract, you know, the best 40 players in the country and, and manage their time that way? Yeah, it, it would. I think, you know, that's built towards the international game. New Zealand, Australia, Ireland, you know, they're all built towards the international game, whereas the English game is built towards the clubs. And I think it's only fair, really, that it's like that because... When it went professional, it was the sugar daddies as such with the clubs that, that actually put you know, their money on the line and said, right, we're going to build this game. And they've done that. And all of a sudden, now it's profitable. The RFU have sort of put their hand in and said, well, actually, we want a piece of this now. When is, you know, I think the RFU are probably the richest union in the world. And at first, they're probably the ones that could have afforded it, but they didn't. They sat back when they had the opportunity to set it up like New Zealand, Australia and Ireland. So you would blame the RFU far more for, than the clubs just for setting up their hands at the crucial time, yeah? Yeah, you can't blame the clubs, really, when, you know, when it comes to it. You know, they don't want their clubs relegated. They, you know, they, I think there are too many, far too many foreigners in the Premiership. I've openly said that. 
Uh, and, you know, you, you say fair play to the clubs like Leicester, Gloucester, Wasps. They are bringing these English, young English players through, but there's not enough coming through all the time. What, what about the standard, Steve, of the Guinness Premiership? Is it, is it a good enough standard to produce good enough English players to compete against the All Blacks in South Africa and Australia? Everyone said, it's, it, I, I honestly believe it's the hardest league in the world. It is the hardest, but it doesn't mean it's the most skillful. Um, you know, it's all about the four, four stroke, five points every weekend. That's all it's about. It's not about, you know, skill levels. It's not about that. It's about not being relegated and getting into that Heineken Cup. And, and that's what it's all about. You know, you, you look at someone, you know, in the Super 14s, for instance, where, you know, one team in New Zealand might bring a, youngst- a couple of youngsters through and they might think, right, we're going to f- not throw the year, but, you know, if we don't have a great year, we're building and, and next year they're not, they're not going to get relegated. The supporters aren't going to leave because it's all provincial uh, and they can really build for the next couple of years as such. Robert, do you think that the Premiership helps or hinders England? Well, uh, it's, I mean, it's very interesting hearing what Steve's saying. I think there's one aspect that uh, Rob and Andrew was mentioning at the weekend, actually, is that there's a lot of other countries that we're not perhaps giving enough credit to the improvement in other countries because their players are you know, learning their trade perhaps in the Premiership. I mean, Samoa had, what, uh, six of their ba- uh, seven backline players, all professional players in the Premiership. So, I mean, in a way, England are helping other other countries get better and, and making their life harder at the you know in international rugby. I think I mean there's there's no doubt Steve's absolutely right. It's uh, it's you, you you need stamina uh, to do well in the Premiership. You don't necessarily need to be the most skillful uh, player or club in the in in the world. And I think that does have an effect uh, on the international stage when the pace increases, steps up a couple of notches, and uh, that those skills aren't uh, aren't easily transferable. Steve, why do you think the skill levels seem to be? so much lower with the England and, and the ho- all the home nations than they are with the Southern Hemisphere. So the number of times that backs and forwards drop the ball compared to Southern Hemisphere side so seems incredible to me. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think sometimes, you know, they, it's one of those things when everyone's looking at it, there's a few cracks, everyone looks for the bigger cracks. And I think at times, you know, England can play some superb rugby, but like I was saying a minute ago, it's, it's down to the pressure, pressure games, you know, when... In the Premiership, say like the pass is on, sometimes they hold on to it because they just think, right, we do not want to make a mistake. And I know players that are like that. Their driver just take it in rather than every week putting that pass in, that extra pass. You know, where in New Zealand you see them doing it and they're so comfortable doing it under pressure because they're doing it week in, week out and they have made mistakes in the Super-14s. But because they're practicing it all the time, it just becomes natural to them. Jed, do you agree with that? I think there's probably a few other considerations to make. I mean, you know, come into... End of year in the in the northern hemisphere, obviously the weather's not so great. So certainly there's uh, the conditions dictate the kind of football you've got to play. And I think for a long time, uh, people from the southern hemisphere have poked the finger um, at the northern hemisphere players because it was just going, oh well, you, you play ten man footy. But I mean, uh, when you're a play player and you you're on the paddock and you're under pressure and your back's against the wall and you've got a paycheck coming in, you do it. You do to get the job done. Who cares how it looks? Mm. And do you think that the Premiership is too much about who stays up and who goes down and is not producing enough risk rugby, shall we say? This could be the nature of the beast, you know. I'm a, as a New Zealander, I'm sitting there with $1 uh, and I'm looking at a pound, which was worth 2.7. So if I'm going to apply my trade anywhere, I might as well take it where I'm going to get paid. It's as simple as that. Now, if I'm, you know, there's a career path building in New Zealand now that says I could play New Zealand 19s, 21s. Maybe maybe fringe of New Zealand A junior all black or something like that. But my next career path step, boom, Leicester. See you later. So unless you're not in the step, unless you're not in the lineup right from the word go, as a Kiwi kid, why not? You know, why kid yourself? If you want to actually get out there and play pro ball, it's all happening up here. Steve, what do we do then? How do we build for for the next World Cup from here? 
Uh, we've got to look at we've got to look at the academies. We've got to look at the structure. Um, you know, they've had some great academy coaches, and you know the, the players are coming through gradually. Um, but it's just exposing them to the game more and more. You know, Cipriani. I I I, I really believe he should have gone. I really do. Who? Sorry, Cipriani. Right. I really think he should have gone. I think he's one of these players. You know, even if he was there for the experience and he would have had a couple of Absolutely. goes you know, in the USA game or something like that. Yeah. Imagine in four years' time, he's already had, had the experience of going to a World Cup. But you're absolutely mindless leaving that kid out. And even someone like Dominic Waldock, well, they could have grabbed him and pulled him in as well. I mean, you're going to give him a wee shot, maybe 20 minutes here and there, but they're going to get to New Zealand in 2011 and they're going to know what the game's all about. Four mm. years of international experience behind them, probably. You know, they're exciting kids. Give them a bloody go. You look, at, you look through that entire England squad, actually. It's, a, it's, it's hard to pick one of them who's there f- with development in mind. All of them have been knocking around for a few years now, with the, you know, with the possible exception of a couple of the scrum halves, but even... even some of those are a bit long in the tooth, you know. There's not one kind of 21, 22 year old kid there. Yeah. Even Tate, even Tate played his first game in 2003. You know, who, who, who's there who'll remember it next time? What, and what's and what's the view, Robert? I'll ask you. <clears throat> what, what is the view on on Brian Ashton? Because here was a man who was brought in, who was who's built his reputation on a certain way of playing, and yet England seemed to be playing in a totally different way. Well, well, if you talk to Brian, he'll tell you that, the, you know, he came in, effectively started in January. Um, you know, the World Cup, is, uh, as we know, is, is now. Uh, that's not a lot of time in international rugby terms. Now, you know, England had a fantastic uh, win at Twickenham. I don't know if you remember, against France. Uh, Shane Garrity, Toby Flood ran the show. There was a lot of um, youthful promise, if you like. Uh, that looked fantastic. They took a view, rightly or wrongly, that they were in a very physical group, that uh, it, exposing some of these kids to that, they weren't perhaps quite ready and that they'd be better off uh, with the gnarled, you know, experienced forwards. Now, it hasn't, it, it's backfired simply because, the, you know, they've got uh, stuffed uh, by the Springboks and they, they needed a change and they haven't really got the balance in the squad to, to, to do that. They haven't got, um, you know, if you look at uh, the, the, the Francois Stein, the uh, South African 20-year-old, I mean, fantastic player, can slot in all over the shop, gives them a whole lot of options. England haven't got that and they're suffering for that. Okay. Just a final word, Steve Thompson, before we let you go. Um, Johnny Wilkinson, obviously not 100% fit, but um, just such a valuable player. And once again, he just seems to lift the side because they feel more confident around him. Is that how you felt? Um, yeah, they do. But, you know, I must. Admit, I fought Ollie Barkley against the America, America with moment of the match. I really thought he was outstanding at 10. Um, you know, he was a bit quiet at the weekend um, because he was, he was in the centre. Um, yeah, Johnny. Johnny does have that ability, you know, especially because the opposition start worrying as soon as soon as you got someone that's going to kick penalties from all over the place. You know, they'll either give penalties away and he punishes them, or they they give like easy yards away because they don't want to give a penalty. And when you have got someone like Johnny in your team, you know, that, teams do worry about it. But still, my my problem is, yeah, he's good kicking, but you know, yeah, we scored tries at the weekend, but other than that, we haven't really looked at scoring other than that really. Uh, again, against a big big team against South Africa, you know, penalties aren't going to win. They are going to. My, my problem as well is the defence, because we look like we are going to leak tries, and against the big teams, we look like we're not going to score them. So um, and Three points compared to seven points is, is no, no like, comparison. And what do you think is going to happen? Do you think England will beat Tonga and then go out to Australia? You know, I really, really hope that they, you know, they really lift it for the Australia game. You know, they can beat Tonga. Uh, I think they, you know, they, they can do enough to get through against them. And then suddenly, you know, against Australia, it's one of them where... It's either going to be really close and we just pipped them or I can see a 40-pointer there. Many thanks for sparing us the time, Steve. Uh, thanks very much for the World Cup four years ago. It's a shame that you and the rest of them aren't playing this year. But thanks for sparing us the time.
Yes, no problem. Thank you very much. Thanks That's for having me. Steve Thompson, former England hooker, of course, and World Cup winner in 2003. Guardian Unlimited, the Rugby World Cup show, sponsored by Magnus. If you want to join in, if there's anything that you want to talk about, anything you want to raise, questions, thoughts, opinions, etc., etc., you can do so by blogging. And uh, to do that, you go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. So go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport and tell us what you think. We were talking about Carl Heyman in our previous podcast. Um, uh, Eddie Butler was suggesting, and Jed was suggesting too, that he's possibly the best rugby player in the world at the moment. He's certainly the most influential and important. And we were wondering, you know, who is the biggest, scariest player ever to have played the game, the most influential? I'll let the boys have a think about that while we just plough on with a few more topics. If you've got any questions... Tell it say, to be Irish, wouldn't he? What? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> Irish? It's not the ugliest. <laughs> uh, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. You three boys have a think about who's the uh, biggest, scariest, most influential player of all time in rugby union. While we just talk about the All Blacks game against Scotland yesterday, um, I have to admit, as a rugby fan myself, I sat down, I saw the fact that that, that Frank Haddon had made 13 changes. I saw the all-black side, which was pretty strong, and just thought, I don't think I really want to watch this game, quite apart from the fact that I can't even tell which team's which because they were both wearing exactly the same colours. Yeah. I, I don't know. Was that in the spirit of rugby? It, just, oh, it was so one-sided. Just explained to Eddie Des that when the all-blacks play Scotland at home, we wear white. That's the colour we wear when we play in Scotland at Murrayfield. Whatever we were wearing yesterday wasn't an all-black strip to me. It was silver. It was made by Mattel. It was rubbish. <laughs> well, it was, it was supposedly the difference between grey and silver, and uh, I think if you, if you watched it in black and white, you know, that could mean an advantage, uh, look, to be if honest. if you hit the button halfway through the game, fair play to you, because you know, I, wasn't, you know, I watched it, I wasn't that thrilled, to be honest. I came away from it with a few senses ringing in the back of the head going, oh, it just wasn't as clinical and as clean. Um, good on the Scots. Because what they actually got some ball, kept it, rotated it, and had a wee crack at us here and there. One ball wide, ball back on the inside. Seemed to seemed like the All Black fringe defence was opening up a bit too quick. Maybe it was coming too far forward and not really pairing off against the guys coming back on the inside. But I think Scotland exposed us a little bit there. Uh, I think through the middle, Scotland had a hell of a time, and really they didn't have the nous up front to take us on. Saw them plugging away at the A channel on the fringe all the time. There's no way in the world you go through the All Blacks there. So it would appear that if you just move the ball a little bit, you might actually create some opportunities for yourself. Robert, that's quite scary, isn't it? A Kiwi criticising his side after they've just put 40 points past a home nation at home. Well, they're, they're tough. They're tough uh, tough judges, and it's one of the reasons why well, they're very good. I mean, I have to say, I, I turned on a little bit late, and I thought, fantastic, Scotland are 30 points up. You know, I, <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, then I, I realised that Doug Howlett, you know, did, probably didn't have a Scottish grandmother, and it was, uh, you know, I got it completely wrong. But no, I mean, New Zealand, by their standards, I mean, Jed's right, they haven't. I saw their game against Portugal, they won by 100 points, but they weren't anywhere near as, as clinical. As, as, as you might have expected, um, I, I uh, in that particular match, Jerry Collins and Joe Rockathoko looked looked very good. I thought yesterday, you know, the, it, it was difficult to tell because that was whatever anybody says that was Scotland's beating. Um, and uh, I think there is an aspect they will come potentially to a quarter final in Cardiff, uh, which I suspect we might be discussing later against France. France will have had uh, two or three real tough games. New Zealand won't have been tested at all, and, and that that might just be a little. Uh, 
little chink in their armour. Alternatively, they might get one against Ireland and not have half a decent game until the semi-final. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What did you make, Ian, of, of the um, that the, the changes? Was it, in, was it in the spirit of rugby that yesterday, or what? was it just? Well, look, well, we're never going to beat New Zealand, so we'll just get ready for Italy. Of course, it's not in the spirit of rugby, but realistically, lads, we abandoned the spirit of rugby when we were in professionalism in the, yeah. in the mid-90s. You know, Frank Haddon's got the best, biggest game of his professional life next week against Italy. That's a Scottish quarter-final and, you know, a, a measured modicum of success for what's a, what's a team that's been improving in the last couple of years. Or it's going home early, or it's start again, or it's get pilloried, or it's, you know, yeah. be the worst Scottish performance at a World Cup. In his position, why are you going to sacrifice your best men against a beaten from the All Blacks? You know, there's only one game that matters to them, and it's next week against Italy. And, you know, you can be as romantic as you like, but it, it, for them, it just shouldn't matter. Next, next week is the thing. Yeah, that's the game. Scotland against Italy, which is on Saturday. Uh, England against Tonga is on Friday. And then on the Sunday, Ian, of course, it's uh, Ireland against Argentina. So these are all the really crunched matches about can the home nations finish second in their group effectively. Game of the tournament. Game of the, even from three months out when they pulled the draw. Ireland-Argentina. Everyone, everyone saw Ireland-Argentina back in New Zealand. We thought, here we go. This is going to be a real one. Why? Just look at the two sides and... Uh, sure, I mean, it, seriously, look at Ireland and I think, good God, the wheels have gone, they've gone in different directions all over the place. But, I mean, you know, for a wee bit there against France, they closed the fist and had a crack at them and that was good enough. Um, but, you know, it's, it's life or What bit was that? I didn't notice it. <laughs> oh, there was a little bit going on there against France. I thought actually they stacked up all right in the top five for the first 25 minutes. Mm. Um, but you've now, Ian, you've got, to, you've got to beat Argentina, you've got to score four tries and stop them being within seven points of you? Is it too much? Well, you, you, you've got to think it's unlikely. I mean, I think it was Thomas Castaned wrote in The Guardian this morning that the, the main thing Ireland appear to have lost since the team that beat Australia in South Africa last year is Seoul. That does not look like a squad that's been together. And you, you, you underestimate this in professional sports sometimes. You know, I, I thought it was really key when Marino retired over the weekend how he thought about how he talked about how much of his ethos was the strength of the group and the and the and the bonds that you know the bonds between them and how if they thought as one they played as one. Ireland used to look like a team that did that. They went out against England in the Six Nations at Croke Park last February. Absolutely destroyed them, playing like you know playing like a unit, playing like a one mind. And that's the real thing that's been missing from Ireland this World Cup so far. They are a very incohesive, but look, a very incohesive. I reckon Sidagarad Ian. He's had his day. Really? Yep. It- it's Trouble is, there's not, nothing in reserve. They've got Paddy Wallace, who barely plays fly half for his club. It, it's interesting, isn't it, how, how quickly teams can, you know, just disappear over the, over the hill, if you like. I mean, England, before the last World Cup, you know, they were fantastic in the Six Nations before. Won it, won it uh, triumphantly in Dublin. And, and I know they won the World Cup, but that, that team was on its way down, and that was within sort of six months. And you just wonder whether something similar hasn't happened to Ireland. Yeah. How do you see that match against Argentina, Robert? I mean, having seen Argentina in that in that opening match, uh, I, I I cannot see Ireland doing anything to to shake that uh, that that Puma's scrum, and that's where the uh, Argentina is strong is is in is in those set pieces, and, and and Ireland, as we know, are not particularly strong in that area. Even if they rediscover you know some of that missing magic behind the scrum, I think they're really going to struggle against the Pumas. Mm. It's been uh, it's been quite a spectacular fall from grace in a way, hasn't it, for Ireland? It has, and all, all the more for being kind of so inexplicable. I mean, I've, I've talked about Seoul, but, the, you know, the, that's still exactly the same team that went out there and, did, yeah. and, and beat all those big ones last year, you know. Um, you just wonder, I mean, they're really upset this week over the rumours that have come out in the French press. Um, I won't repeat them, but concerning Roman O'Gara and a big gambling debt and... 
marital difficulties and stuff like that. I mean, they see that as a deliberate leak from the French side last week. So that was deliberately leaked to upset the Irish side? Well, that, that's what they see, but, um, you know, they could have del- they didn't deliberately leak, leak it three years or three weeks earlier when they were still playing awful, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I don't know. I mean, those rumours have been circulating in Ireland for a while. You, you also had the, the other rumour that Jordan Murphy was about to work out, walk out of the camp, which again was denied. But, but don't these things actually have an adverse effect and then unify the team and give them something to fight for? Well, they do unless they're kind of true in some sense. They do unless they, they've lost a lot of spirit and, they've, they, and they've, you know, they're not playing for their manager, they're not playing for each other. And that's what it looks like to me. OK, the other team in the group, of course, that was significant in all those matches was France, the hosts. How ironic it would be, Robert, if they ended up playing New Zealand in Cardiff in Rugby World Cup France. Well, I, I gather they're talking about moving the Arc de Triomphe to New, Newport just for the occasion. <laughs> uh, no, it's an absolute, absolutely ridiculous, and, it, and it, I mean, in many ways, it's it's great news because it, uh, it, the organisers have, have got their comeuppance um, for for allowing it to happen in the we, first place. I mean, we should explain to anyone who wonders why the the World Cup, supposedly in France, has actually got a couple of games in. Uh, Scotland and Wales. It's because they did a deal, did they? Yes, the French yes, it, with it, the... it political political horse trading is uh, all you need to know. Or bribery, um, as it used to be called. <laughs> no, you know, last last World Cup. It, it dates it dates you know way back actually. Ironically, to um, when uh, the, the late Vernon Pugh was was around at the IB, and it it's just it, it just does dilute the whole um, Frenchness, if you like, of, of the competition. And, uh, you know, but they never thought it would come to this. They never thought that it would, it would involve France, New Zealand, which would be one of the biggest games of the, so, of the tournament. So, effectively, France said to, the, to, to Wales and Scotland, look, if you vote for us and stop England getting the World Cup, we'll give you a couple of games. Exactly that, and actually Ireland as well. But they were having uh, at the time were having um, Lansdowne Road uh, redeveloped, so they gave their games back. Right. Okay. And and in terms of that game, I mean, you've got to say that, that everything would favour the All Blacks, although the All Blacks have come a cropper before Jed against France. If that game does take place, yeah, well, certainly late in the dance, we sort of fall off the card a bit. There's no, yeah, yeah, the record's there. Look, if we're going to win the World Cup, it'll be France. In the quarterfinal, it'll be Australia in the semi-final, and it'll be the box in the grand final. And you'll have done, and it, you'll have done it the proper I way, mean, won't you? I don't even think Evil can even would bother dri- driving over that. I mean, <laughs> that's that. If if we go through and take the cup, you know, and it, if we'd played Ireland and Cardiff for the quarterfinal, then I'd say yeah, we're going to go and win the cup. But it's a totally different equation now with France, the Crocs, and the box. It's just. She's up in the air as far as I'm concerned. France, the crooks and the box, did yeah, you say? Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Right. Uh, who do you all think, by the way, if you want to get in touch, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Uh, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. I posed a question earlier because one of our bloggers was asking us about this. After the Carl Heyman discussion we had earlier in the week, who do you think is the toughest, hardest, strongest, ugliest, I don't know, you name it, player you've ever heard of, ever seen, ever had a reputation about? Jed? Oh, it's a few people in New Zealand find it hard to go past Keith Murdoch. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Tell us about him. Yeah, former Zingaree Richmond player from Dunedin. Yeah. Uh, infamous for being the only All Black ever to be dismissed from a tour. So, down in uh, Wales after the test match against Wales, which the All Blacks won. What did he do? Got into a scuffle with a security guard. Well, didn't really get into a scuffle with a security guard. Uh, security guard went on a wee sleep, and Keith went on the long ride home. Got off in Brisbane, never seen again. Really? Never, never went home. Really, never went home. Was, wasn't he tracked down briefly once, and he, and he knew, you know. Yeah, they, they, yeah, there was. He the was guy wanted, who did it was lucky to escape. He was, he was actually wanted in connection with a uh, with a murder investigation, <coughs> and uh, some ex- outback part of Australia, and they tracked him down. He had nothing to do with it. 
Uh, but he's led the life pretty much of a recluse. Is this because he'd be dis- a disgrace to come home? Or? Well, I think he'd decided I'd better get on with my life. And uh, certainly if you're an all black and he was a man with a big reputation, you know, uh, Colin Meads gave Keith Murdoch uh, one right between the eyes and Murdoch just looked at him and said, is that it? Is that all you've got? <laughs> it's to Pontry's respect, though. He came yeah. around and said, well, that's just a warning shot, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that's the hors d'oeuvre. Yeah. How about you, Ian? Uh, I was going to go for another keeper. Well, I'm going to go for two front row people. The first would be Fitzpatrick. Oh, yes. And Sean, Sean Fitzpatrick. <laughs> and I, 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 just, I, I just remember Ireland playing them down once, and we, we had a hooker called Steve Smith. I think it was Dunedin Test. Uh, he was getting murdered in the scrum, Smith. He was getting bent backwards every time they went down. Oh. Um, so he'd had enough after about 10 minutes. You know, next time they went down, he drew back hard as he could and just popped Fitzpatrick one right in the chin. Right. That's a big chin, mate. <laughs> and he just smiled. <laughs> he just smiled and He's went straight back down to the scrum. He was the hardest right. guy you could ever see. Another front row, I'm going to take an Irish one this time, was Peter Clahossie. Peter Clahossie was just fearsome and feared the length and breadth of the country. The journalist friend of mine wrote something to offend him once and he, he, he crept into the dressing room to apologise. Clahossie made everyone oh. else leave the, leave the dressing room so it was just the two of them. He said it was the most terrifying moment of his life. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it was just words, was it? It was just, it was just words, but you know, real hard men only need words. Yeah, not many of them. Robert? Oh, well, I, I mean, there's so many, aren't there? I, you know, if, if you're of a certain age, it was Monsieur Bastia in the, in the French uh, second row who seemed to be about eight foot tall. But I, I think, to be honest, if, if you were going to play rugby now, if somebody said, oh, look, um, here's a pair of boots, here's a shirt, Chilcott, I think, I think you really wouldn't want to get down. Gareth Chilcott, I, I remember the, the lovely story when he, he was uh, playing against Cardiff and uh, they had their Wales and British Lions prop die young opposite him and they had a... Yeah, there was a sly punch came in apparently pretty early on, which caught Shilcott and he, he they were down on the ground and he whispers in uh, he, he, he whispers in his opponent's ear. He says, "Do that again, sunshine." He says, "And you'll live up to your name." <laughs> <laughs> nice oh, I one. Love that. I love that. Uh, if you've uh, got any people that you would like to compare and say, "Look, you think you're tough." These guys are even tougher than you know how to get in touch with us. Blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Tell us who you think was the hardest and hairiest rugby player of all time. Apologies for all our Welsh listeners, but we haven't mentioned Wales. They're playing Fiji on Saturday, and that's a game presumably we all think Wales will win comfortably. Yeah, I think so. Wales are in pretty good shape at the moment. You know, we're just quite impressive against Japan. I mean, against an admittedly weak Japan. But they seem to be finding a bit of form since the second half of that Australia game. They look to be a team that's just slipping into a rhythm. Uh, I, I don't know. Keep your eye on Wales. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I agree. Slow developers. But uh, come knockout stages, they're definitely setting up to play a wide game, Wales. They're putting a wee bit in the back pocket at the moment. It's mainly first passes going to the midfield. But Thomas and company, when they're coming on to the ball now out wide, are really causing some damage. So... I hope I hope the Welsh get the running game back in order. It'd be fantastic, Rob. Well, one thing you've got to mention is that Wales actually playing back in France. They haven't won't have that little um, cushion of playing in, uh, playing in you know on home soil, so that might make a bit of a difference. But no, nothing I've seen from Fiji suggests that they're about to take uh, anybody apart. And so, and I go, I go Wales. Okay. Before we go, I should just mention if you are a, a Kiwi fan, if you're a fan of rugby, and you are in the London area, 
uh, and the New Zealanders are ever playing, do pop down to the Clapham Grand. Yes, please. Because that's where you do your alternative commentary. That's right, yeah. And you get a fairly sizable crowd in, don't you? Yeah, there was a good mob on the Arsenal, aren't they? Yeah, they were into it. Now, in fact, the last time we spoke, yes. I said to you, is there anything about England that surprised you? And you said, yes, fold up bicycles. <laughs> because, <laughs> because we don't have them in New Zealand. And yeah. I asked you why, and you said, well, we've got loads of room. Yeah. So, is there anything else you've seen yeah, in the, the last week? Price of them, mate. <laughs> <laughs> they quite have that, do they? <laughs> nice one. Uh, do listen to us, though. We're going to have our next podcast when we will obviously preview in more detail those uh, weekend fixtures. They are, of course, the ones that really matter: Ireland against Argentina that's Sunday, England against Tonga on Friday, Scotland against Italy on Saturday, and Wales against Fiji on Saturday. So this is Ian Payne saying thank you very much for listening to the latest podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Uh, we'll hear from you and you'll hear from us towards the end of the week. Thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Rugby World Cup show sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. Guardian Unlimited.